Kongs Archons. Welcome to Sanctimonious, a Keyforge podcast where two zealous Keyforge players discuss various topics regarding combat within the Crucible. Stand at attention and salute your hosts, Sir Jake and Sir Dan. Welcome back to another episode of Sanctimonious. This is your host, Jake, joined by two wonderful co-hosts. We have Dan Johnson. Jake is back. Welcome back, Jake. And also Alex Slotnick. Hey, how's it going? I am doing great. Very excited to be back on this wonderful podcast to have some great conversation with some awesome people. So do we have any announcements we want to? Do you have the results of the Survey Monkey? Are we done with that yet? Oh, yeah. I forgot that I was going to announce a winner. Yeah, let's find out live together. Ooh, so exciting. Alex, sorry, you were not a finalist. Oh, I mean, I can't see how, but I, I, I know it was rigged, so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, just logging in here. We'll have the results in a matter of moments. All right, so pulling up the results here. And the t-shirt champion grand winner is Beehawk. Beehawk. Thank you so much uh, for the incredible design, and thanks for everybody who entered, I was honestly just completely blown away by the overall quality of the submissions, present company excluded. <laughs> Shade. Hey, at least he tried. All three of the designs uh, in, that were finalists were really cool. So if you haven't seen those because you only listen to our podcast or something, you should definitely uh, check it out on Twitter. And I'll, I'll include a link in as well in our show notes here. Are we ready to talk about the shop you set up, Dan? Or no, no, that's fine. Let's talk about it. So we started a red bubble shop. Um, it's still in the early works, but you can pick one of our three designs and get it slapped on just about anything: a bath mat, a shower curtain, a duvet cover, a phone case, a t-shirt, a hoodie. I mean, the and the possibilities are endless. I haven't. I need to go in and do the front and back design shirts. So if you want a front and back design shirt, that's not quite available yet because I have to find time to do that. Um, but if you just want any of those designs on the front of a shirt or you can move it to the back of the shirt yourself, those are all available in various colors. And uh, yeah, Beehawk's actually been having fun looking at his design. He found a black, like the black logo on a black t-shirt. It's kind of a black on black and it's two different shades of black. It's so dark. Dang, that's an edgy look. Yeah, so that's that exists. So it's Redbubble. If you just search Sanctimonious on Redbubble, we should pop up with um, all of the designs that were selected. And if you're a designer out there that was working on one, because I know we had, I know I sent the logos to a lot of people. So if you're still working on a design, we are still open to receiving those. And if it does get selected, we will pay you in the form of a shirt of your choice off the site. So don't stop the, uh, even with the contest over, don't stop believing. Keep achieving. Do you think that uh, the bath mat design is sort of encroaching on Keyfort's territory, <laughs> or do you think that's okay? I think it's okay, because, I mean, it's an actual bath mat. It's not just a rubber oh, bath okay. mat. I mean, and when you when you roll out that bath mat at the, at the play table, that I mean, that'll put the Keyfort uh, play mat to shame. <laughs> I'm going to bring the shower curtain to worlds. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, what even is this podcast about? If if you're joining us for the first time, this is a podcast where we talk about the card game Keyforge and various different topics every single week in relation to that. Uh, but we usually start out with a weekly inspiration where we say one Keyforge related thing that inspired us this week. Who wants to go first? Alex goes first. He's the guest. All right. Um, I was, I am inspired by Worlds Collide. We are nearing the actual street date, even though we all have our target decks for some time. Um, if you're like me, you probably bought more than you should have. Um, and I'm just excited. I'm excited for what Worlds Collide is going to bring to uh, the meta. I'm excited for the mechanical changes um, and the new houses and just to really uh, see those decks start to go out into competitive events. Um, it's just, uh, 
it's kind of like uh, it's kind of like the week before Christmas is what it feels like. Um, you know, we're just getting getting really geared up for that release date. Here, here, yeah, I'll jump in. I'll inspire as well on Worlds Collide. It's been a ton of fun. I have a deck that I'm testing pretty hard because I've got a primes. I am actually going to play a lot of Keyforge next week, guys. Believe it or not, real in life, Whoa. in real life, Whoa. Keyforge. Yeah, Blake from Help from Future Self is going to come down and hang out for the weekend because there's a bunch of release events and a Prime event happening in Seattle. So if you are in the Seattle region and show up at Uncle's, I will be there Friday and Saturday. So Friday for a release event, Saturday for the uh, Prime event, and then a release event post the Prime event. So a full day of forging those keys. I'm starting to feel like pretty self-conscious that Dan's planning to leave me for Blake as podcast host. It's just like <laughs> editing that podcast last week. I was like, man, Blake has such an awesome podcast voice. Unite the Canadian twang with the Archon voice. I'll start my podcast with him and I'll just talk like that the entire podcast with his Canadian twang and it'll be amazing. I don't see what can go wrong. Yeah. But anyway, that was a really cool episode. Uh, and by the way, I did upload it with not our normal logo, but a jack-o'-lantern that Zodded had created that I thought was awesome. But I did notice that episode got less listens than our normal ones. So I wonder <laughs> if some people missed it in their feed because it just looked like something weird and not sanctimonious. So if you're listening to this one and did not listen to our last week's episode that had Dan, Alex, and Blake talking about preparing for Archon tournaments, uh, it's really good. I really enjoyed listening to it fresh, uh, and I would encourage you to go back. Okay, so is it time for my inspiration? Yep. How are you inspired, Jake? Get it. Last week, I wasn't able to record because I was traveling to Texas. I got to meet up with some really good friends from undergrad at a buddy's ranch, uh, played a bunch of yard games, some board games and stuff. But on the way down, I crashed with uh, another friend of mine in Austin, and um, that was really nice. And we played a whole ton of Keyforge because he kind of took the day off work just to hang out. And it was really cool because we had played maybe a, a game or two when the when Keyforge first came out. But now is throwing you know Worlds Collide decks his way, uh, AOA decks his way, as well as Coda. And that was really my first experience pinning the. Uh, anything against World Collide, really. I just have those two decks still that I opened originally. So that was a lot of fun for me. Um, but it was also cool to see his reaction to you know how much the game has developed and all the new cards uh, since the original release. So uh, that was just a total blast. And then one comment he made that sort of just made me think about introducing to to new players is he... Uh, somebody who plays a little bit of Magic before, not like a big competitive player, but just casually with me. And, you know, he was really quick to sort of point out the difference between Keyforge and Magic, where Keyforge rewards long-term strategy to a much greater extent in the way you can cycle through your deck. And he was a, he sort of picked up on that. And it sort of revealed the necessity, I think, when teaching the game to a new player. Or maybe past that, like, you know, first game, but once you get into game three, four, five, uh, that it might be a good idea to sort of help somebody to understand, like, what their deck is trying to accomplish um, so that they have some idea of what strategy they should play towards without that sort of little bit of guidance, what, what these decks are trying to do. They might not have as much fun with them as they otherwise would. Yeah. No. The one world's collide deck that i'm really jamming hard right now feels like i have a really good coda matchup because it punishes amber pips real hard in furnace you are my friend yeah that card's so good and um i mean i just think that i like i, I like world's collide and i do i actually do like what world's collide is bringing to the new player experience um i think it plays a it plays a it, it's like AOA and I think that it plays the board a lot, but um, I think that it's adding some stuff that feels exciting, uh, maybe more exciting than a new to a new player than just a bunch of raw amber. Um, there's a lot of really interesting effects and um, there's a lot of opportunities to kind of feel like a genius with worlds collide, which is always a, a key to making a game engaging. <laughs> yes, 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 very much so. And like, yeah, the Amber Control's different, but we'll do a Worlds Collide episode after the official launch. That way everybody can be spoiler-free till then. So let's, uh, yeah, let's start waxing poetic, even though I went to so bad. 
but yeah. The old retroactive spoiler warning. All right, so Worlds Collide is going to be really fun, and it comes out next week, and it'll probably be out in like two days from the time you guys are hearing this, so rejoice. Well, with that, let's move into our main topic. Preparing for Steel events. Yeah, so uh, sealed variant formats. So we're going to continue our discussion from last week where we talked about how to prep for big tournaments with vault tours and primes and store championships, uh, vault warrior. I don't know, vault warrior, maybe one of the one of the vault warriors, I think, can actually be sealed, but I think most of them are archon of some sort. Um, maybe the qualifiers, I can't remember. I don't remember sealed as an option for those. I don't. I don't believe it was. But pretty much Vault Tours and Primes and Store Championships all have the ability to be sealed events. So let's talk about some of the ways you can prepare for these said sealed events. So the very first thing you can do is you can learn the commons and uncommons for the set that you're going to be playing with. Alex, what are some what are some of your tips for learning commons and uncommons coming into a new set? I tend to accomplish that by playing a lot of games. Um, now, prior to a set release, that's a little bit more difficult, but um, I just remember like the way that my memory works and the way that I do. I learn a lot best by um, action. Um, and, I, and I think that there's a, there is a kinesthetic thing for all, a lot of people um, where repetition is the thing that kind of gets you to log in your brain. Um, I know that um, Lady Caffeine in this court has done flashcards. Um, that didn't, uh, I didn't find that particularly helpful. Like, I just can't remember it that way. Um, but uh, for me, the biggest way that I did was actually uh, go doing my card review is how I decided I would learn the cards. Um, that's why I, I started doing that on my blog to begin with, was I just wanted to have, a, have an opportunity to learn all the new cards from the set. Um, but prior prior to doing that, I would say that it was mainly um, just jamming a lot of games with as many people as possible. And just that way you get as much exposure to the card pool as you possibly can. Shameless plug for Alex's blog, Proclamation 346E. <laughs> Jake, how do you learn the cards to uh, to start a new set? I think it's important to point out that the reason we say learn the commons and uncommons is because that's the bulk of what your deck will be comprised of. So, I mean, while there are really impactful rares out there, uh, it's it's usually not sensible to play around them in the sealed format because, you know, it's just much less likely that your opponent will be holding one of those in their hand than one of the commons. Um, so I think that's, that's the key point for why it's important. Uh, I don't really have any specific tips for learning them. I think, I mean, it's something that, uh, comes just after playing games. So I think really the big advice here is just to make it intentional uh, as you play games to be thinking about the cards, especially the ones that make big impacts in the game and, and taking time to, to read your opponent's cards rather than just, you know, having them resolved as they say that they resolve. Yep. So yeah, I'm kind of in the boat with Alex. I, I usually learn better by um, playing games, but I also learn quite a bit from looking at lists i look at a lot of deck lists and anytime there's a card in there that i don't recognize or i can't recall off the top of my head i definitely use sir bots a lot to look it up or do a hover over if it's in that format where you can just hover over to see the card but yeah that's been the way i've been that i've always yeah a lot of lists it's always been a lot of lists it was a lot of buy sell lists before and now it's just a lot of deck evaluation lists because the discord's on fire welcome all you new people um all right uh, so the next topic we kind of have within the commons and uncommons is to have awareness of the swing effects in the format. Um, Jake kind of mentioned you can't really play around rares because, I mean, rares are rare. You're not going to see them very often. But knowing what commons and uncommons are worth playing around is very advantageous to you in the sealed format so you don't set yourself up for a big swingy play. So... Um, board control cards. What kind of board control cards have you guys always kind of kept in the back of your mind as you're playing in like AOA or Coda? 
Um, so the, I mean, the big, the big guys, uh, the big board wipes that w- are important in Coda are probably things like Coward's End or Gateway to Dis. Um, the, those are both at the common rarity. And so that becomes a lot more important to worry about them in, uh, I mean, in Coward's End made it to into AOA, right? Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's in Coward's End, you, you still have Coward's End in AOA, but you don't have Gateway anymore and you got Unlocked Gateway. Um, and but kind of kind of like with this topic and with with board wipes, I did want to I did want to mention, too, I tend to think about um, houses in in a general in general of like when you see. So with Sealed, all you're going to see is the houses. Right. So if you're coming up against a dis, you got to know what board wipe options are available to them. Even if you can't afford to play around it, it's good to know, hey, Unlock Gateway exists. And I really need to, I need to think about if I get Unlocked Gatewayed here, how do I get, what do I do? Or what's my response to that? Correct. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. Um, a lot of times you're not going to play around cards you know are in your opponent's deck in Archon, right? Because you, you won't, you'd be giving up a bigger disadvantage to you know, hold a card back in case they have something and you just want to force them to have it. Um, and then it's out of the way, it's over with. So you're definitely not always going to want to play around these cards in sealed. Um, I think exactly like Alex said, it's important to be aware of them, but I don't want to misconstrue this conversation as though we're saying like these are cards you always need to be uh, playing around. It's more like you need to be aware in the back of your head that this is something that could happen to you. Yeah, so like in the case of like the big board clears, you just want to know that if you have a turn where you could potentially, if they haven't played Dis in a while, say you're in a AOA or Coda world and they haven't played Dis in a while, you know they're building up a Dis hand and that's probably like in Coda, maybe they're building up the creatures and the gateway to Dis. So if you have a turn where you're debating playing out more creatures or using your creatures on board, maybe you lean more towards using your creatures on board to get value out of them before the big board clear comes. And that's one way to do it. The other thing to just kind of be aware of is like direct removal something you have to be kind of aware of um what houses like the commons uncommon direct removal so things like twin bold emissions and coda just knowing that if you play out a bunch of two two power creatures into a deck with logos that they could just disappear off the face of the board before you ever get a chance to use them um I mean, you can't i mean i guess you can't really play around that one yeah uh, other cards like um hand of Dis is one that you can kind of play around if you have an important creature and you're playing a Coda sealed environment, you knew not to put that in the middle of creatures. If you're playing against a disc deck, you want to put it on the flanks. So that way hand of disc can't get rid of it. Just those kind of considerations. I'm trying to think positron bolts, another one where you can kind of control yeah. how you order your creatures. So they don't get full value out of a positron bolt. That's the action that goes three, two, one from the flank. moving right. on. In. So just different things like that. Yeah. You want to be aware of what those cards are and how, like, you, yeah, I mean, you don't know if they have them, but you can play in the most optimal way that if they do have them, um, they're not getting the full value out of playing those cards against you. So I think that hits board control, amber control. This one's this one's a big one. As we know, amber is how you win the game. So Jake, let's start with you. What kind of amber control cards are you looking for? Yeah, so once again, I think uh, you're really right to point out in board control sometimes it's less those swingy cards and more like the situational ones that you can make better plays to avoid because you know the board control is just going to happen um but with amber control uh, a lot of the most impactful amber control cards are contingent upon how much amber you have so i'm thinking about something like burn the stockpile i know that's an uncommon but uh like the payoff for your opponent if they're able to hit with that is so big that you know, at, at, at some situations in the game, you know, it really might be worth it to you to stick at six rather than go just up to seven. I mean, if you're able to go up to like eight or nine, maybe then you do want to take the risk. But like the swing on that of losing four Ambers is so enormous. Um, and so I think that's kind of the archetype. You know, we want this to be an episode uh, that has some sort of legs and longevity to it. So I think that fits really well with what we're talking about with Swingy here, you know, and other examples would be too much to protect. Or I know uh, a new, I think it's called the Evil Eye is the new card in Worlds Collide. Is that right, Alex? Yeah, the Evil Eye, it's a disaction. Um, your opponent's keys cost plus three on the following turn. Yep, plus 
Right. So like that would be an instance, you know, when when you're thinking forward to Worlds Collide, maybe you do, if you're playing against Dis, they haven't called Dis in a while. That's like a really good common card. Uh, So maybe it makes sense to stay at eight rather than potentially lose three Amber uh, rather than just skip a Forge. Definitely. No, I mean, yeah, and the Amber Control. Yeah. We, I mean, you. Everybody kind of knows the big cards from AOA and Coda. They didn't change too much um, in the world with Ronnie Wrist Clocks running around, and he's still running around in our new era. Which I, God, I love that guy. Um, anytime you're going against Shadows, like you just know, going to seven is such a risk. Like at six, they can probably pull you off, but if you go to seven um, and they have that Ronnie, I mean, they're getting full value out of Ronnie. So that's always a consideration I make when I'm playing against the Shadows deck in the AOA and going forward days is just, you know, do I really need to go to seven? Like if I go to seven, like I know that I'm potentially setting my opponent up for that optimal Ronnie play to pull me down to five and off check. Or if I play to six, they can still play the Ronnie and pull me off check, but they only get one Amber from me instead of the second Amber. So sometimes it's worth it to hold back and just kind of force them to, you know, play the Ronnie a bit suboptimally. It's still, getting some value but not the full value maybe alex you can weigh in because i think maybe we disagree i think just all else equal if i'm playing against shadows in in aoa sealed i think i'm just gonna go up to seven rather than six if i have that opportunity um i would actually i would agree with that honestly um for sealed specifically especially so if you're um there's a difference between a game on day one of a sealed event or an early round of a sealed event versus the latter rounds or a day two. Um, so if I'm in early in day one, um, I don't play around too much to protect very hard um, because that's still an uncommon and it's still not that likely that they have it. And even if they do have it, they especially if it's early in the game, they have to have it at the exact right moment. So I'm I'm definitely um, against shadows. Yeah, I'll, I I don't stop at six because that it is way more likely they could take you off check at six than it is they can take you off check at seven or eight. Um, if you can get in AOA, if you could get to eight, you're generally pretty safe to forge a key unless they have double, you know, something like double Ronnie, and then you're just sad. But yeah. you know, you can't you can't always my 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 rationale is we can't you can't always play around stuff a lot of times in sealed you lose because you you lose more by playing around something than you would by going to check and making them have the answer that's kind of my my theory is like i'm always just going to make you have the answer and if you have it that's that's variance that's keyforge that happens you know yeah but and and the reason i bring that up is not to say that you know that dan's wrong to point out that there are these moments when you know it's uh, it's objectively wrong to go up to seven, right? If they are holding Ronnie, like you'd rather go to six than seven yeah. every time. It's just to, yeah, it's just to say that, like, with this discussion, I want our listeners to keep in mind, like, these are for things to be aware of, but it's not necessarily like best practice to always be worried about these cards. In the yeah, back no, I mean, if you can go to eight, I would go to eight. Like, I would happily go to eight at that yeah. point. But if you're like sitting at the end of your turn thinking between six and seven and they haven't played shadows um just knowing that seven could potentially set up a bigger swing for them i you know maybe that's why i'm not very good at sealed <laughs> i need archon i need to know the information this is also i mean this is why though it's so good to know the card pool because in sealed what i tend to think about with amber control is what type of check is best based on the houses that they have so in ao I mean, in AOA, um, in Coda, it was a little bit different, but I'll just, AOA was the most recent sealed experience. So I think that's what we'll talk about. Um, For AOA, I was always thinking about, there's really two two Punisher cards, um, three, if you count Ronnie, that for going high over six, it's interdimensional graft, it's too much to protect, and it's Ronnie Risk Locks. If they don't have those cards, I mean, if they don't have those houses, if you don't have Logos and you don't have Shadows, I don't have to worry about that. Like, I can just checked at whatever number i can get to and that is a big component of the game of like i only know that because i know really innately what's in those houses hey don't forget about our friend burn the stockpile and doorstep yeah 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 Yeah, burn the stockpile that's the other one um 
and doorstep, but doorstep less so. I don't really consider usually in a sealed environment. I'm not going that much over over anyways so i don't feel like i've never really felt like doorstep is that punishing to be honest um and in some ways i don't even feel like burn stockpile is that punishing even though you lose four there's like a lot of situations where even if you've set yourself up well burn the stockpile isn't damaging enough because you your opponent doesn't gain the ammo. it just kind of sets me back tempo but that's like it is good to remember that because if you spent your entire turn gaining amber and then they doorstep you you're pretty sad <laughs> Yeah. All right. Should we move on? Yeah. This is a good discussion. Yeah. All right. So the last one we have to be aware of is key cheats that are in the set. I mean, the 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 ones we can point to most frequently are, you know, key charge and choda. And like the thing, I'll just start on this one. I'm going to I'm going to run with this one. Look out, guys. Here I come. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> you see your opponent, you're in that really tight game and they stick a untamed board of like three creatures. They're sitting at like three amber with three creatures on the board like most of the time you know our our motto is abc always be checking but sometimes in that kind of scenario you got to look and think well if they have a key charge and they're able to reap with three of their guys that means they just need to have one amber pip in hand and a key charge to just completely wreck me and sometimes you just have to gamble and go for it but other times if you have the ability to reduce that number like maybe use some kind of amber control that turn to bring their amber down a little bit, or if you can get rid of a couple of their creatures through a play, a lot of times you're very rewarded for making that play to, you know, take away their ability to key charge. Heard a lot of stories from people that were like, yeah, the opponent ignored my untamed board and I just creeped four times and played key charge in one. And yeah, don't be that person. Jake, what do you feel? Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I, I think again, like, be aware of the key cheats that are out there. I know there are some, a bunch of new ones coming out in Worlds Collide that are are more contingent like that on uh, sit uh, on the way the board is set up. You know how much amber your opponent has captured on their creature and stuff like that. So you know, I think there there are things to be aware of. But at the same time, I think to to you know to defer to our previous conversation on amber control. I'm I'm usually going to bank, you know, I'm usually, I guess, going to take the gamble of them not having two specific cards in hand if it's, you know, an Amber Pip and a Key Cheat, for instance. And I think it's sort of one of those things, we've talked about this card, Key Charge specifically, where it's like, you know, it feels really bad to lose to Key Charge in, in a preventable way, but, you know, it's probably more often still the better play to do you know whatever else is going to give you the best chance of winning the game if they don't have it than to set yourself back on tempo just in case i don't know it's tough i mean and i think that's like where you know what's happened in the game previously where you are at the game what uh you know where in the tournament you are and and even reading your opponent comes comes into play yeah I was going to say, I was going to say with that too. Yeah. Like being able, a lot of times with key cheats or things like Martian generosity, um, your opponent will telegraph to you that they're building up to this by like maybe going to, maybe they take a turn where it kind of seems funny. They don't, they, they gain less Amber than they could have by playing, maybe playing some cards out or, uh, maybe taking a turn where they reap to amber, but don't quite get to, ch- they or you know, reap to like five amber, but don't quite get to check. A lot of times there is a little bit of a telegraphing of that, those plays. Um, I, I think in particular, uh, backtracking a little bit, the there's a, a telegraphing with things like too much to protect in miasma often. Um, like you'll see if, so, if my opponent, and th- this actually happened to me at Gen Con, my opponent went, miasma like did like one thing miasma and then passed and i was like he definitely has too much to protect in his hand um and so uh i mean that's like you know so i say that in the in the key cheat area too um you you can try to get a read on them that's kind of hit or miss and honestly whether you can play around it or not is a really dependent on game state 
Um, sometimes you can afford to take a turn where may, maybe you don't get to check and you also maybe make them lose as much amber as possible or deal with their board a little bit. But honestly, a lot of times the right answer is don't worry about it. If they have it, they have it. And then you just got to like if if my choice is getting to check or not getting to check and maybe removing like, you know, they have, let's say they have a board of three untamed creatures. Um, I probably get to check because there's a lot of variability in there, especially, you know, it's, it's just hard. It's really hard. If you lose to that, it does feel bad, but a lot of times giving them another turn, it depends. And again, this is where game state depends a little bit about what's in my hand. If I have Amber control responses for the following turn, absolutely kill it. Removing the creatures is the right option. But if I know that, the next turn, I can't get them off check anyways. I should just get to check myself. No, I definitely agree. I, I think just to like put a cap on this section, we kind of got a little bit more into playing the game than you know what to do to prepare for sealed. So just to bring it back, I think that you know the this element of the game is not there's never going to be a right or a wrong um, for every situation, right? Everything is is nuanced by everything Alex was just talking about. Um, Having said that, you know, you can't, and, and this is where the best players are going to separate themselves by making the decision right more often than wrong. But right. to even get yourself to a place where you can make that decision, you have to have all this information. Uh, you know, you have to know what cards are out there or else you're not making a decision at all. And that's going to put you definitely behind the top players. Definitely. And I mean, I, I think the reality is all the top players know all the cards. That's just like a, a, a fact of life of like most like there's a couple of rares uh, and I'm not calling myself a top player, but even for me and I don't consider myself like by by any means the best Keyforge player in the whole world. Um, I know the majority of the cards. Occasionally I have to remind myself of like what a rare is or something, but not very often. Yes. All right, let's move on to our next main topic. Well, not next main topic. Yeah, whatever. Moving on. <laughs> so we're prepping <laughs> for a big event. So one of the things you need to do is you have to have a plan for deck evaluation. And if it's solo sealed, you don't have as much of an issue here because you got to play what you get. But most, most big sealed yeah. events are going to give you two to three decks to choose from. And you're going to have to determine which one of those two or three that you're going to pilot for the remainder of the tournament. And what what deck you choose right there is a uh, is a big part of how successful you're going to be on the day. So, um, Jake, what are what are some of your tips here? What do what do you look for? Yeah. Um, so I think like you really can't understate how important this part of the tournament is. I mean picking which deck you're going to use out of your three is the single biggest decision you'll make all day. And it's not close. Um, so I think the biggest piece of advice here is to have a plan going into it. If you're just going in, you're going to rip open your three things and then just, you know, decide on like gut feeling. Um, I think that is going to put you at a disadvantage with people that are going in with a plan. And, by that, I mean, like, literally, how are you going to evaluate the decks? Like, what are you looking for? And how are you going to make that note and indicate it to yourself? Okay. And getting back onto the uh, <laughs> outline. Uh, Alex. Uh, <laughs> Wait, <laughs> where did I do? What did I do? Kind of all over the place, but I like it. No, it's good. Um, so we, I, the first sub point we had is the to know which strategies are generally good in the format. Just kind of um, understanding ahead of time, maybe what are the stronger houses, what are the perceived stronger houses, and what those houses do is kind of a good plan. So for AOA, Alex, did you have any perceived notions about what houses you were kind of looking for? I, I mean, I definitely have houses that I like more. Um, in in AOA, it was, I, I really liked Logos, um, and usually Shadows, Um Dis, dis is 
Yeah, I mean, the, for obvious reasons, I, I'm I'm just I'm actually answering this question in the moment, but I'm realizing I just chose the three best houses. Uh, yeah, Logos Dish Shadows. I mean, obviously, for good for good reason. Um, they just do a lot of really powerful things in AOA. However, um, what I'll say is I tend to I tended with AOA to not pick so much based on houses, but just to pick based on what is actually the best deck. Um, there are you can have a idea of hey, what are the strongest houses and what are the strongest cards? But the great thing about Keyforge is you get into the you get into looking at the decks and you just realize sometimes you open. I mean, there were a lot. The thing about shadows in AOA is very hit or miss. Um, so you could get a lot of bad shadows too. And so a lot of times I found myself um, with AOA caring about creature count a lot. Um, I really like creature heavy decks in AOA because it's such a board focused set that if you get if you just get a massive board presence, a lot of decks are going to struggle to deal with that. And I just I want a lot of sealed events that way just by literally just even if it had worse and bird control, picking the deck that just had the most dudes in it, especially if those dudes are Brobnar. <laughs> Brobnar is good in AOA. I like Brobnar a lot. No, I think that's a really good point. And, and that just kind of shows that like AOA... Alex has found the strategy of big boards because the actual big board clears weren't as common. I don't think, uh, sorry, jump in here. I don't think it was as much that there wasn't as much board control, although that might be a small factor. I think it was more to do with the fact that you're less likely to open a deck that can win without a board in AOA than you are in Korda, where there's so many more Amber Pips, which necessarily means whichever person wins board control more often throughout the course of the game is going to win the game yeah absolutely and that's not the case in archon where you're gonna you know because obviously that's not the case for every aoa deck and like the small percentage that can win without a board are are seem to be the best aoa decks but like in the sealed format it seems to be that those those board control decks are the best ones. definitely and then i mean Coda was a weird one in Coda, you're almost trying to pick the one that was just the fastest, right? I didn't play a lot of Coda Sealed. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Coda like just had such a, you know, like there's just so much less parity in Coda that oh, yeah. it was just so much more about identity. I don't, and I, I guess I haven't played any of the three deck sealed type stuff, but like I very much had. You'd have the experience where you'd know kind of how good you're gonna do opening your deck i don't think coda evaluation was usually hard because usually it was like garbage garbage this is this is like insane like you know five star (laughs) deck like there's there's there was generally not you didn't tend to get middling decks with coda you either got this is hot like this is reversal quality or this is like the best deck i've ever seen it didn't seem to fall in that middle of the bell curve so much seattle i took alex's strategy for aoa and i had a big board deck and all three of my decks, like the one I didn't, one of them that I didn't pick was definitely not the right call. But the other one I probably, probably was actually a little bit faster, but it wasn't as creature heavy. And so, I don't know. I went three and three. I got some. It's, it's an all-in strategy. I mean, because if you do happen to come up against a person with really good board control and you took the creature heavy deck, you're just, you know, you, you do bad. <laughs> Alex, I got a question for you. Sure. So if Coda was all about speed, and AOA is all about board. What's World Collide going to be about in the sealed format? Uh, World's Collide is about sequencing and about, I mean, really, and about, um, I think it's also a very, bo- I, I think like AOA, it is very board centric. Um, but I think unlike unlike AOA, I think where, where you place stuff matters a, ho- a whole lot. Um, battle line placement is a big deal um, and you're gonna have to be thinking ahead because it, 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 it's not just where do I where do I place my my stuff so that I don't get hit by the negative stuff it's where do I place my stuff so I get so the positive stuff also works um, so there's a lot of that in AOA and I do think that it is while there is more board control um, it is very different than the previous sets boards board control for the most part so you're saying coda was big amber aoa was big boards and worlds collide is big brains i think so. i mean yeah really there's so many That's accurate. decision points in worlds collide and it's amazing so so know your strategy for evaluating decks 
have in your mind kind of what you're looking for in a deck. And we all have different decks that we tend to prefer. And I think my mistake at VT Seattle was I could have like this, the second deck I could have picked probably was a little more my style. It was kind of like Trixie playing a lot of cards. Um, there's kind of some interesting decision points where you'd have to make some decisions and just, I mean, it was just, it was a value deck that you had to really work hard to get value. Whereas the other one was just kind of a dumb big board deck and I didn't play a lot of dumb big board decks. So I played poorly with it. But aside from that, um, yeah, you need to have, uh, Jake has it listed in here. Lady Aurora on our discord has shared her, um, cheat sheet that she uses for sealed events where she can quickly tally, um, amber control, amber pips, creatures, creatures per house, just a whole litany of factors that you want to consider when making your choice. Um, what do you guys, oh, the prince is putting in his input here. I'll, uh, turn it over to Jake to pick it up and keep going. It, it's going to be really dependent upon what the event marshal tells you is the allotted time because i mean i think the eddie game has been pretty consistent but cascade games was not um so you know if you have an hour to decide on your deck or 30 minutes then that's going to give you a lot more time to really go through the cheat sheet which has all kinds of different stuff like creature count, amber control, expected amber, art of, you know, everything you would expect to see on your decks of Keyforge page and you can really iron out. But if you only have 15 minutes, um, which I think is how much time Yeti does, it's how much time we got at Origins, uh, that goes so fast. And I mean, like, even like opening your decks cuts into that, you know, like that literally might take you a minute to, you know, get through the plastic of three decks and and start going through them so i think it's important to know ahead of time like what your most important things are uh for me historically and maybe that'll change in the new set uh it's always been amber control is the thing i'm most concerned with um but you know it it just goes back to what's good so in aoa i was looking for amber control plus creatures slash creature control and coda i was looking at uh, amber control plus expected amber. So I think just knowing like what are your top priorities uh, and that's like the first thing you start. Alex, what are you looking for as you're evaluating your decks? Are you? Um, yes, I will brief. So my my process is usually, and I do it the same way every time so that I have sort of a rhythm, but I count, first thing I do is count amber pips. Um, second thing I do is count amber control. Third thing I do is count creatures. Um, and then I get, and then I spend a second sort of just summarizing in my mind what the deck is doing. Like, what what's this? Is this deck a creature-heavy deck that wants to get on board? Um, you know, in uh, my most... I did Store Champs recently, um, and the immediate thing I saw about the deck that I picked, which it was two-deck sealed survival, was um, I'm going to stick, my plan with this deck is stick a Brobnar and a Sanctum board and reap. And that's the only way I have to win. I have a couple of Amber Control cards that will get hopefully get me there. But I knew that I just had to control the board as best I could, but I needed to prioritize reaping over fighting because I need to, I need to end the game relatively quickly uh, based on my lack of amber control. Um, And that was just my best choice. My other choice had zero amber control and a much worse board presence. Um, But that's, you know, sometimes you're in those situations, but that's kind of my process for evaluating is those four things, amber pips, uh, amber control, creature count, and then just, hey, what is this deck's overall game plan? So follow-up question. Do you consider the allotment of creatures? So if it's like a five 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 or a six five four or something like that, does that affect your decision making at all? Um, no, I've heard people express rationale for that, and I don't necessarily disagree. I just also feel like sometimes in sealed, that's maybe a concern. I can't ha- like if I'm if I'm between two decks that are very close, something like that might matter to me. But usually I found that I br- the process breaks down a lot sooner than that. Like I don't need to get down into that nitty gritty of a decision-making process before, uh, before I'm kind of just thinking about 
the before I've kind of made a decision. I also I I'm a very uh, intuitive person. I would say not that that's non intuitive, but I, by that I mean I go with my gut a lot of times rather than a like a logical. Um, I'm breaking down, you know, creature count by house or this or that. Like there's a logic to the way that I think, but um, a lot of times it ends up just being, I just kind of rip the thing that feels best to me or the thing that I expect to have the most fun with uh, to actually enjoy playing. Yeah, I think, I think I agree. That's a tiebreaker thing. And I think, you know, if you have two decks that are very close based on your top level concerns, then you start looking at that, start looking at like the actual, way the cards maybe synergize together um, i mean the only time i mean if there's like a broken combo then that's yep. gonna be different that's not like a little synergy that that could you know bring a deck to the top of the heap or whatever but yeah i think those are definitely like second order if concerns. you rip martian generosity key abduction in a sealed you're almost <laughs> always gonna take that right like stop. yeah uh, <laughs> i would agree with that Dan, i don't know would you, i've played too many martian generosity key abduction decks where I mean, yeah, I'd have to try it in sealed. I don't know. It would feel pretty good because they're not going to expect you to actually have both pieces. So, I mean, you could just get some out of nowhere wins because they're just not playing against you, expecting you to have it. So, yeah, I guess maybe you do. You still need some kind of amber control. I've played with some with no amber control, and it just still feels miserable. (laughs) Yeah. I think if the I think the most recent Vault Tour taught us anything is that Martian Generosity is the single best card in Age of Ascension Seal. All these like Martian Generosity decks have gone up on decks of Keyforge. Everybody's hypothesizing maybe there's a nerf coming or something because there's a lot listed right now. I don't yeah. I don't think so. Yeah, that card is not there's there, that there's no problem with that card to me. <laughs> but anyways, so going back to it, so the house breakdown. I I mean, if you've selected your deck, I think it's kind of good to maybe even. Like, just know for yourself what the creature breakdown is. Um, and then maybe the relative power, so how often they're actually going to stick to the table. Because that can kind of give you a head start into knowing how to pilot your deck. So if you have a deck that has more creatures than the other one, say it's like a 7-4-3 and you're sitting there looking at three creatures of each house, you play the one with more creatures knowing that you might draw into more creatures. So you can use that for kind of small advantages. But again, you've only got so much time. So, I mean, make the best decision. And then hopefully you can figure the deck out. Um, yeah, I think that I think our advice can kind of be summed up as that: just make <laughs> yeah, the best right. decision. Easy. Pick, just play, play good. Pick, don't good, play bad. Pick the good one, guys. Uh, <laughs> Forge more keys to win the game. No, so this evaluation process, you definitely need to practice this. Like this is something that you only get better with with practice. This is something we do in our Discord quite a bit when we have a vault tour sealed coming up. Um, again, Lady Calf will put up like three random decks for us all to kind of look at, evaluate. We'll put our what our lean would be, which one we'd select and why in spoiler text so that way everybody can look at it clean and get their own impressions. And that's been a it's been a huge tool for a lot of people, I think, going into some of these VTs, just doing that practice day in and day out and just kind of getting to read other people's thoughts too, because you kind of learn a lot because like, oh yeah, I didn't think of it that way when there's two decks that are kind of close. Um, Alex, I know you've participated in a lot of those. What's, what's your take on those? Oh, I mean, I love that. I love the, I love practicing choosing a deck. I think it's one of the best ways to actually, turns out practicing choosing a deck makes you better at choosing decks. Um, but, uh, joking aside, like it really does. Like I found that practice. And I mean, like you said, doing it with other people who have a different way of thinking about the game, they have different play styles, um, they have different likes and dislikes, is really, um, really interesting. It's really changed the way that I evaluate. A lot of the habits, I think a lot of the good habits that I have in deck evaluation came from seeing the way some of the geniuses who are in our Discord um, evaluate decks. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. (laughs) You guys are smart. (laughs) Yeah, I haven't been playing with that at least recently so yep <laughs> you're welcome yeah I, I just click on the spoiler text of the people i think are smartest and it- <laughs> like yeah that guy is so bad. <laughs> and then the other way you can practice really quick before you move on to the next one is just i mean if you have a friend like a lot of us have excessive amounts of decks so you meet up with a buddy throw a bag together of your like bulk decks and just each grab three out of the bag you know tear one open play it dirty play it nude and just see if you made the best decision, then try the other deck that you were considering and just see 
I mean, that's just a good way to do it. Like if you've got some in real life buddies that you can kind of get together and just kind of do that, kind of have your own sealed three deck format just to kind of get that. Or I mean, even on your own, if you just want to do it with your own bulk decks, just grab three random ones and try to decide which one you would go with just to kind of get that, get that feeling of cracking the plastic, looking at the cards. I mean, you can't do it if you've been like pouring over the DOK of all of your decks. So (laughs) at that point, it's probably not good. That's why it's probably better to do an exchange with somebody else. Yeah, this seems like a really fun way to get some value out of those bulk decks too. All right, so we're, we've we've made the correct selection on our deck. We've evaluated it effectively. We've picked the one that fits our play style the best. Now we're heading into round one. What are you trying to figure out as you're heading into that first round, Alex? Um, I think... Th- that I'm trying to think about um, prior first. I mean, first thing that I'm thinking about is I actually because this is I haven't played with this yet. Need to make sure I get an extra good shuffle. That actually is a really important thing. You don't want to. I want it to be as randomized as actually possible. I don't want things to be clumped together. Um, but I also am think you know just in te- that's just an integrity thing. But um, I think about. Um, I need to, from this game, get a sense of was I right about what my deck is doing or were there some things that I missed in the deck evaluation process? As the game goes on, do I do I feel like, man, I really I really ex- this deck is executing exactly how I thought it would or uh, are there takeaways maybe for the future? that I can have really after, I mean, after once you're in the game, you, the, the lessons you can learn from the deck evaluation don't really help you for that, that event anymore, but there's still stuff to be learned for future events. Jake, add on to that, please. Sure. Yeah. One thing I like to do if, if there's time, maybe you have 10 minutes or something and you've shuffled your deck adequately, I like to just like pull a hand um, and then just play it out like three or four turns to see how that went. Um, and just if, just do that as much as possible going into the first game. I think it gives me a sense of what kind of hands work with the deck um, and then what kind of, you know, cards specifically I should be looking for or not looking for. Um, because, I mean, the decision of to mulligan or not is, is a place where significant advantage can definitely be won. So if you can make a better decision than your opponent's able to make, Uh, at that first game i think like you know why not try and take that advantage so that that's how i that's that's one small way that you can uh start getting a feel for those mulligan decisions trying to understand what your deck what your path to victory is is really 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 important i hosed myself at vt seattle because like i said i just hadn't played with a big board deck like that the time i fancied myself a control deck player so i liked a lot of actions you know, like 13 to 15 creature kind of coded decks is what I was mostly rocking. And for the VT, I had a 20 plus creature deck. And so I, I got my first round and then I lost like the next three rounds because I was trying to play it like an action-y, tricksy one instead of just loading up the board with big boys. And it took, <laughs> you know, four games and talking to a bunch of people in between rounds, asking good players like Eric, aka Justice Blinded, I'm like, I'm like a terrible player, aren't I? He's like, no, you're not a terrible player. Like, well, what am I doing wrong with this deck? And he's like, uh, it looks like you just need to go wide. Like, oh, well, yeah, I guess I have a lot of creatures. I should just go wide. So I went wide and just crushed the last two rounds. Like, it wasn't even close. And so, yeah, like really trying to get an idea. Like, if you do have that big creature deck, knowing that, hey, you just need to smash, you just need to throw creatures out. Like, you're going to have a creature advantage. Or if you have the action deck knowing that you know you need to be efficient with what those actions are and just really understanding the deck strategy as best you can and like alex said you're going to learn more as the rounds go but just having that general idea of what you're looking to try to do with your deck is going to be a big advantage going into game one i think that story also brings up another thing that we don't have here on our little outline but use your friends if if you have friends there or you know see some people in their sanctimonious community team shirts and you want to say hi you know if you're not 100 percent sure or like just give it somebody else like what would you be trying to do with this deck yep definitely all right so our next thing is we've gotten through the first round we've either won or lost 
We won. Yeah, we won. Community team. Um, adapting your strategy. So, win or lose, after playing one full game with our deck, we're now going to kind of start to see kind of, you know, some of the ins and outs that we maybe weren't readily apparent with the deck. Um, let's start with Jake this time. Jake, what are some things that you kind of try to take away after that first round match? Great question. I think, you know, the most important thing is that you're paying attention and reflecting on the game. That's something that actually uh, Alex talked about the first time he came on our podcast and about how, like, what an important aspect of the game um, that really is. So, um, you know, that was something I've picked up from him and really tried to apply, and I think it does make a big difference. So I think there are some kind of key questions you can ask yourself after the game uh, just and just think back on how that played out. So you can ask, like, did you discard a card that you wished you had access to later or on the other side of the coin? Did you hold on to a card thinking that it was going to give you a lot of value and then like it didn't really pay off? Um, you know, those can give, you know, reveal really important insights for how you should be playing the deck for the remainder of your game. I also like to think like, what was the moment of the game when I won or lost? And, you know, could that have been, you know, avoided or like, could I have played to that situation sooner? I think that really gives insight as to like what your deck's biggest weaknesses are that to play around or like what your win condition really is. Cause it might not be what you thought you might it might be a really important synergy that you hadn't played with before and you're like wow as soon as i got those two cards on the board together like it was a different game um and then like on i guess more to like a negative side i like to sort of think about like which of my opponent's cards were the most difficult to deal with uh did he have you know a creature that he got a lot of value out of do i realize oh wow i don't really have a good way to deal with elusive creatures or i don't really have a good way to deal with big creatures uh so like or artifacts, you know, what what are sort of the hard to remove threats for you? Um, and then, you know, finally, like, did I appropriately evaluate my opponent's threats? I think that's a huge decision point in the game uh, where you have to decide, like, should I be advancing my board or killing my opponent's creature? So sometimes, you know, we make mistakes and, you know, let something stick around longer than we should have. Uh, so, you know, that's important to to be aware of as you go into your next game. Like, you know, next time I think I will kill that Witch of the Eye when I have the opportunity. Yeah, I've got to kill it. Kill, kill the Witch. Alex, anything to add on that brunt of discussion there? Yeah, I would just, I mean, I, I really, I mean, really just want to echo what Jake is saying in a lot of ways. But to say, like, you need to know... Um, I, I you need to know what was I happy to see? Like what cards was I happy to draw? And that's a really good way of evaluating, okay, like what are the things that I'm looking for uh, when in my opening hand? Because the, the first game, I think the first game, and even I think no matter how good you are at, mul- uh, at deck evaluation, knowing what to mulligan for can be very challenging with a new deck. So I think noticing as you're playing that first game, what cards was I super happy when I drew that? I was like, that was the exact card that I needed, or you know, that that would have been useful so much earlier. Um, that's a great way to figure out what to mulligan for. Um, and I would even say that overall, what was I? What was good? Um, what was luck? And what was skill? Um, did I did I win because of variance in this particular matchup, or did I win because of I made some important decisions? Did I lose because they drew, um, like what happened to me in a game? My opponent drew double life ward turn one, um, or t- it was turn one or turn two, um, and played both of them out and proceeded to lock me out for two turns. That's a variance thing. Um, there was nothing I could do to to respond to that. Um, and so it's like, you know, knowing that though, it, it not only helps you not feel tilted about losing, but also helps you to know, Hey, sometimes the deck, his deck just did what it was supposed to do. And my deck was doing, my deck was still doing what it was supposed to do. Um, but I didn't maybe make any play mistakes or I actually did make a pretty big mistake that I left that professor Sutterkin alive or the witch of the eye, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, yeah, best of one is mean. Just always remember that. Best of one is mean. Until we can get this game to a standard best of three format. 
sometimes you're just going to lose the variance and that happens. And even in best of three, it can still happen, but it's not quite as likely since you get the other two games to kind of try to not get high rolled or low roll your own deck. But uh, yeah, I think the other important thing, which was kind of mentioned too, is just understanding where the weak points are in your deck. So in that first game, like you're kind of saying, if you don't have like hard removal, maybe that deck requires you to fight a little bit more to control the opponent's board before it gets out of hand. Or maybe you do have a big control board, so you can use your creatures more to reap and do other things, gain amber, and then use rely kind of on the big board clears to take care of uh, board, big sticky board situations. So that's just something to keep in mind, and you're going to learn that after your first round, and then each round you're going to kind of see a little bit more and so that kind of brings us to the next point. Um, your strategy should adapt throughout the day as you learn more about your deck and as you continue to either move up or down the rankings. So let's uh, let's say we're going up. Say we're 3-0. Alex, what are you thinking about now at 3-0 in a sealed environment? I know that at 3-0, my, de- my opponent's decks are going to be better. That's just uh, pretty much um, uncategorically true. Like at 3-0, three, I'd say that 3 Three O is where you'll you'll start to get into the really competitive stuff, unless you just got unlucky and played the person who wins the tournament. You know, goes on to win the tournament like Jake. Uh, <laughs> um, but you know, three O is where you you find those really those really competitive decks, and um, or maybe the better end of the sealed pool even. Um, and so, what I'm thinking about is now's when I start to care about those cards that are maybe more niche, um, like too much to protect or those, you know, because, or, um, in worlds collide, there's a lot of combo oriented stuff. And it's where at three O's where I'm going to start to care about those combos more, where I'm going to start to, to notice, Hey, um, I won't, I won't do spoilers, but you know, start to notice that, okay, that seems like, uh, if they set down these certain things, I better take care of them immediately because they can really combo off of that very strongly if I don't deal with it. So that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about at 3-0. Jake, any, any idea of how it feels to be 3-0? Because I sure don't. It's not a good thing or a bad thing, but it is a fact that how well you do in Sealed is tied to how good your deck is. Yeah. So, I mean... It, the good decks are going to rise to the top. So uh, I think Alex made his point at the very beginning, you know, when you're thinking about what cards to play around, it's much more likely that somebody is going to have a too much to protect in their deck uh, or a Martian generosity, even in their deck when, when you're meeting at the, you know, five O table, than the OO table, you know, I think that does not much, but in some ways, you know, it does change the calculation on how likely they are to be holding some of these high impact swing cards, especially, um, you know, the ones that are key in the format, like, like the Amber control ones. No, I think that's, that's pretty good. Like you can just assume the further, the higher you rise, the better the decks, the better the players too. Cause obviously they're piloting them efficiently from game one on when you're in that XO X one scrapping for day two, you can pretty much assume it. 3-0, that it's, yeah, it's going to be salty. People are going to, and at that point too in the day, people actually have a pretty good idea of what their deck does. So you're not going to probably see as many, I mean, as many like pilot errors where they just didn't play something in the right order because by that point they've gotten three or four games and you should be at the same point too where when you've had three to four reps with your deck, now you kind of understand how that deck actually operates and what you need to work on to make that deck successful. All right, we've come to the end. Jake, oh no, let's go with Alex. Alex is the guest. Final thoughts on preparing for a sealed event. What are the biggest takeaways that you have for those folks prepping for that VT or that prime or that store championship sealed? I think that with sealed, um, what we've all said is at the end of the day, you are subject to what you open. Um, And that in a lot of ways is a weight off of you of, you can prepare, um, and I think that you can do that biggest by practicing deck evaluation and by practice by knowing the card pool. But at the end of the day, you just have to play what you open. Even in even when you get three decks, um, you you may get something insane. You may not. Um, and I think that all you can do 
you can't what what we can't worry about is the things we can we can't control right what i worry about is my play and my decision making and so for a sealed event that's you can always practice those things and you can always improve in that and so that's what i would say going into a sealed event make sure that you're honing in on even in the archon games that you play what decisions did i make that could have or what decisions could i have made that would have changed an outcome of a game or ensured the outcome that i wanted indeed well said jake your final thoughts preparing for sealed is different than archon because it's fundamentally different it rewards different things it rewards a wide knowledge of the card pool uh, to a greater extent it rewards deck evaluation to a greater extent um and I think that both of those things just lend to playing a lot with all kinds of different decks, like play fun, uh, casual games with your friends, because that's going to be great preparation with seeing cards you maybe don't normally always see in the competitive room on TCO. Uh, you know, play as many other sealed events as you can, play weird draft formats, like just do whatever, have fun. And I think as long as when you're playing for fun, like you are applying a critical lens to the game. Like that's just the best practice you can get. Spectacular. Uh, my sealed record states that I shouldn't say anything here because my sealed record is terrible. But we'll just say it's a really <laughs> bad deck uh, opening. Yeah, that's definitely what we're. Yeah, I mean, the sun was in your eyes. Your knee was acting up. Small child was crying in the background. Uh, no, yeah, I think sealed really, it really, really rewards the evaluation period, like being able to make the best decision, choose the best deck, and then just effectively from the get go, know how you're supposed to pilot that deck. Um, yeah, I found maybe I'm, I just spend too much time playing Archon. So I'm used to getting multiple, multiple, multiple reps with a deck before I go take it to some kind of tournament. And just that allows me to kind of mess around in the first few games because I don't really care what my result is with the deck. Whereas in Sealed, I mean, you have to be nails from the get-go. So that's something I can definitely work on. And hopefully in the next week here, I'll get to put all these spectacular tips into practice at the uh, Worlds Collide release. Well, I think that is it for this week's episode. I have to run to uh, the first week of our leaderboard chainbound event. So I'm going to sign off first. Uh, this is... Jake Friedman, you can find me online um, on Twitter at Jake Fried. That's J-A-K-E-F-R-Y-D. Uh, it's been great chatting with you both. Um, so I am going to run. Bye, Jake. You can find me on Discord as the Nickel Slots uh, hashtag 6418. Or uh, you can check out my blog, which is uh, uh, Proclamation346E. Uh, uh, keyforgeblog.wordpress.com um, which hopefully we can link that in the show notes. Perfect. And you can find me I'm Danis someone D-A-N-I-S-S-O-M-E-1 that's on Twitter and Twitch. Twitch has been surprisingly vacant. Sorry. Newborn life. Um, but yeah as always thank you to the Patreon supporters. We really appreciate all you guys out there. If it's worth a dollar to you we will take that. Thank you to everybody that submitted t-shirt designs. Those were amazing. Thank you to crying children in the background as I try to wrap this up really fast. Uh, <laughs> real life happening right before your ears. All right. Uh, Archons, when heading into the unknown, be sure to have a clear mind and be prepared for the epic quest that is about to unfold. Seek the radiant truth from the Archon that you partner with, lest you be on the wrong side of the Eye of Judgment. Charge forth to victory and not to a martyr's end as you seek your honorable claims within the Crucible. And as always, forge those keys.